Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, defying Queen's Park. We want kids in class. The illegal strike is not fair. And frankly, we're not going to tolerate it. We're saying no. No to the people at Queen's Park. Thousands of Ontario education workers hit the picket lines today across the province, even after the provincial government passed a law banning their strike. And at the same time, the Prime Minister is threatening a federal response. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms cannot become a suggestion. So how will the Ford government respond? And how long are QP members willing to fight? We talked to a union leader protesting at Queen's Park and the federal labor minister on the PM's threat of action. Plus, Organizers Week at the Emergencies Act inquiry. I had no idea that it was going to become what it, what it evolved into, yes. Convoy organizers have been on the stand all week at the National Inquiry into the Emergencies Act. So do we finally have a clearer picture of the protest? This is Power Play. Now let's get to the players. Thousands of education workers across Ontario walked off the job today, leaving hundreds of schools closed indefinitely. It comes just one day after the provincial government passed Bill 28. That's the back-to-work legislation which imposes a four-year contract on education support workers. And today, and that makes today's protests illegal. The legislation also invoked the notwithstanding clause to prevent any constitutional challenges to the controversial bill. At Queen's Park is Candace Rennick, QP's National Secretary-Treasurer. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Candace, the Ford government has imposed a contract on your members. So is that it, or is there any hope that, re that negotiations will restart? Look, of course there's hope that negotiations restart. We are ready and willing and able to go back to the table uh, any time they say they are available. Um, our members are not prepared to live with an imposed collective agreement. Uh, it is our right to freely negotiate a deal that is fair and just for our members, and that's what we intend to do. But at the same time, what we're hearing from Minister Lecce is that that's it, game over. So do you have any faith that they'll come back? Look, we hope that they come back. We're inviting them to come back. Uh, but this has gone, I think, far beyond just 55,000 education workers in the province right now. I mean, you know, invoking the notwithstanding clause in this legislation is an absolute attack on the Canadian Charter. And, you know, I think you're seeing from across the province that the people of Ontario aren't going to stand for that. We're not going to allow our rights to be stripped away, and we're not going to have a contract imposed on us, um, and we're not going to be bullied and threatened by this government. So we're going to fight back. At the same time, parents do need to plan for Monday. So does this mean that your members won't be at work again next week? Our members will not be at work on Monday. And our members are parents too. And they're struggling as well. And we are going to stay out on the picket line for as long as we can until we get the government to go back to the bargaining table and negotiate a collective agreement uh, with our members. Now, the terms of the legislation include fines for protesters of up to $4,000 per person. Wages have been at the heart of these negotiations. So can your members really afford to pay for these fines? Or is QP able to sort of help the workers cover those costs? 
Of course, our members cannot afford to pay for these fines. These fines are absolutely ridiculous. They're meant to threaten and to intimidate our members into submission, and I can assure you that is not going to happen. We do not believe these fines are even legal or constitutional. We will fight these fines. We are going to do everything we can to not pay these fines. But what I can assure the members of the Canadian Union of Public Employees who are on strike right now fighting for their rights is that their union has their back, and we will support them in any way that we can. And I know at the same time, I mean, the kids are the focus for your members as well. Premier Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce have said they want to keep kids in school. So how concerned are you that if this continues to drag out longer, that students will in the end still fall behind? We're very concerned about the children in the province of Ontario, which is why we're taking this action. We need a major investment in public education, and that's partly why we're out here walking the picket line. We care about these children. These are our children, too. QP National Secretary-Treasurer Candice Rennick, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Just a reminder Thanks to people, so we did request an interview with the Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce today. His office told us the minister was, quote, unable to accommodate an interview today. But he did speak with our colleagues at CP24. Have a listen to this. We were literally in a room negotiating, trying to avert the use of legislation. We simply asked, take the strike off the table. But they didn't. In any way, would they commit to that? Because I think they wanted to proceed with this strike. They had done their preparations and nothing was going to stop them. And that's why the government had no choice. But we brought forth legislation. We have an obligation to parents who sent us to Queen's Park to stand up for them. And when we are you know, essentially told we are going to strike in five days because we're not getting our demands for compensation of nearly 50%, I think any responsible government would introduce legislation to force uh, our work for our workers to go back to class and support our kids. Also today, the Prime Minister had some strong words for the Ford government and its use of the notwithstanding clause to pass this back-to-work legislation. Justin Trudeau even threatened a federal response. So what could his government do? Let's find out. Joining me now is Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. I wanted to start by asking you, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been very clear. He's not happy with the Ford government using the non-withstanding clause, and he said the federal government is looking at all options in response. So what is on the table and what isn't? Well, um, let's just say that, you know, to say that we're not pleased about it is, is perhaps a, an understatement. Uh, you know, Maybe it's because I studied political science and followed it during the 80s and 90s, but I mean, the notwithstanding clause is, is like the nuclear option. I mean, you know, this just doesn't happen. And suddenly we're seeing a reoccurrence of its use uh, and a preemptive use of it, uh, which, you know, as I said, the cavalier way in which it's, it's, it's being used is just uh, offensive. Um, this is the charter of rights and freedoms. When we talk about freedom in this country, this is the document that protects us. Uh, and it protects particularly uh, from a decision that was rendered back in 2015. It, it protects collective bargaining and the rights of workers. And this is circumventing that uh, as a negotiating ploy. Uh, it's unbelievably cynical. So for that reason, um, for reasons of you know defending workers, for the reasons of defending minority rights, for the reasons of defending the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, yeah, we're looking at every option. 
Now, is one of those options the power of disallowance, where the federal government can overrule and toss out a provincial law within two years of its creation? Is that something the federal government would consider? Mike, honestly, yeah, if you expected the labor minister to get in front of the attorney general on a law that hasn't been used since 1943, I think when uh you know it, it invalidated a, a some uh, the alberta legislature i think it was on a, a law that restricted land sales to hutterites and other enemy aliens uh so we're talking about something that 1943 um so you know I'll, let me just i'll leave it with this you know we're looking we're looking at you know whatever options we can um uh, to defend workers rights and to defend the charter of rights and freedoms now, to that end, the Ford government's argument has been that they need to keep kids in school and that some parents do agree with them. Now, at the bargaining table, the two sides were extremely far apart. But as the Labour Minister, can you understand the argument of the Ford government when it seems that a deal wasn't close and the threat of a strike loomed and they needed to do something? This is the height of cynicism, to be honest with you. Look, I, I, have, I have family in Ontario. I have you know nieces and nephews who... You know, miss soccer games, uh, you know, and, and people are tired. I get it. Like, you know, we've just come through two years of COVID. Uh, parents have had enough. Kids have had enough. We are talking about janitors and, and teachers assistants and people who live in Toronto on 40 grand a year. You know, I, to, to try and 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 and, and do a, a, an incredible constitutional workaround is it it's just incredibly offensive stick to the negotiating table negotiate with unions in good faith come to an agreement i mean you know labor right across this country is absolutely furious because but we should all be not just the members of qp and not just labor leaders this is our constitution it is being upended you know this is incredible to me uh, and we will do whatever it takes to hold up the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, to that end, you say work and get back to the negotiating table, but your government in 2021 did table back-to-work legislation to end a one-day strike by dock workers at the Port of Montreal. So if you say that a deal should be reached at the bargaining table, but your government did that, can you really say that your government believes in workers' rights if just in 2021 your government used back-to-work legislation? Mike. There, it is one thing, I mean, look, back-to-work legislation is something that nobody wants to have to do. I was under tremendous you know, pressure from the media more than anybody to, do, to, to, you know, to say something about that during the CP rail for, uh, earlier this year. I didn't. But the bottom line is this, what we're talking about here is the notwithstanding clause and its preemptive use. So it's not even just back-to-work legislation. It's like, don't even bother taking this to the courts. Because we're going to we're overruling whatever judgment could have been rendered by the courts. So this is this is next level. This is not the same thing at all. Minister Seamus O'Regan, I appreciate your time today. All the best, Mike. Thanks. Up next, the cross-examination of Tamara Leach. In her second day of testimony at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act, the convoy organizer tried to distance herself from protesters facing allegations of violent behaviors. How much responsibility was she willing to take? We'll bring in CTV's Glenn McGregor next. Stay right here on Power Play.
I believe that everyone that, that was involved and that joined was, was in it to uh, be listened to, be, have their voices heard as far as the mandates and the restrictions and the lockdowns went. There was a lot of excitement and uh, it was a very jovial atmosphere. We didn't want to create a big disruption to them. We wanted to be respectful to the citizens of Ottawa. That was just part of the cross-examination of convoy organizer Tamara Leach at the inquiry examining the government's use of the Emergencies Act. It was the second day of testimony from one of the most well-known names from the weeks-long occupation of Ottawa. Now, while Leach said she couldn't be held responsible for the protesters who came to Ottawa, the inquiry also heard from Diagon founder Jeremy McKenzie. So how critical are their stories to the commission? And what were the key admissions today? Joining me now is CTV National News Senior Political Correspondent Glenn McGregor. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. What were the key takeaways that you found from Ms. Leach's cross-examination? If you look back at the first weeks of this inquiry, we heard about kind of the chaos and infighting within the Ottawa Police Service and how people didn't know what was going on. There was mixed messaging. Over the past few days, we've heard some of the same things from the protesters, including Tamara Leach today, over two days of testimony. She describes how she kind of started this very small movement, thought maybe they could ask for $20,000 initially, then they bumped it up to $100,000. And then all these donations come mm -hmm. flooding in, and she realizes she has become a figurehead of this movement. She comes to Ottawa. By the time she gets here, we're talking uh, millions and millions of dollars that have come in uh, to her account. And she feels deluged, overwhelmed by this. People are coming up to her on the street, asking her for money. There's all these other uh, organizations that some of them she knows, some of them she doesn't, some of them she trusts, some of them she doesn't. Mm -hmm. So she kind of hooks up with these lawyers from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom and delegates some of the, the work to them so that she can focus on what she's doing going out on the streets and meeting people. And it sounds like she kind of loses kind of the thread a little bit. She doesn't right. know exactly what's going on. And then we get into this whole drama that she was asked to explain repeatedly about the possibility of some kind of settlement negotiation with the city. And we heard some testimony from Ottawa police and from the right. mayor about that earlier, uh, where they, the protesters would move their trucks out of the residential areas in Ottawa here on Kent Street and on Metcalf uh, into different locations. Some of them would go into Wellington. Some of them would go somewhere else, either out to Embram or to, uh, to Armprior. Right. Um, that didn't happen in part because this guy, B.J. Dichter, who's another one of these kind of characters who sort of shows up here and attaches himself to this, he sends out a tweet using Tamara Leach's account saying the whole thing's fake news, it's not going to happen, and it creates chaos and confusion. In the end, the Ottawa police kind of just scotch the whole thing. But it's just, you know, we're getting these kinds of insights into how chaotic and dysfunctional, not just it was on the streets, but in the Ark Hotel and right. the Sheridan Hotel where the convoy organizers were meeting. And uh, they often, like, weren't communicating properly. And you could start to understand how difficult it was for the other side, for the police and for the city to deal with them because they didn't know who they were dealing with uh, at any one time. And there was no real sort of figurehead leader here. I mean, Leach seems to sort of disavow herself as somebody Absolutely. being Absolutely, yeah. A I mean, that could just be modesty and she's being polite and she's downplaying the fact. But I mean, it was clear to a lot of people she was the most visible face. Right. But there were other factions. There was the Pat King faction. And then we heard about uh, this guy, B.J. Dichter, who was testifying the other day, who was, you know, he's a big pr promoter of Bitcoin. Right. He had some interest in that. Uh, so, yeah, it was diffuse. It was, it was what you know, management experts will call a power mist. Right. And, and so you think about this in the context of what the committee is trying to understand is whether or not the Emergencies Act should have been used. 
you could look at it a couple of different ways. You could say, well, it was clear that this thing wasn't going to get settled. And we've heard testimony from these protesters uh, pretty consistently that they were here for the long haul until the mandates were gone. Tamara Leach kind of suggesting that maybe that there could have been a negotiation and that moving the trucks would have been the first step towards ending this. Uh, but from the point of view of the federal government making that decision, these are all things that kind of went into that computation of whether or not they are actually should have used the act and, and whether they did it. And, of course, we're going to hear eventually from the prime minister and also his cabinet ministers about that point. Yeah, that testimony continues next week. CTV National News senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Coming up, the federal fiscal roadmap. Is it offering the relief that anyone was looking for? Our Friday strategy session digs into that. Stay right here. Power Play is coming back. It would be much better if instead of the federal government having to weigh in and say, you really shouldn't do this, provincial governments, it should be Canadians saying, hold on a minute. You're suspending my right to collective bargaining. You're suspending fundamental rights and freedoms that are afforded to us in the Charter. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms cannot become a suggestion. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today addressing Ontario Premier Doug Ford's use of the Nonwithstanding Clause to impose a new contract on Ontario's education workers. Trudeau was in Toronto today to promote his government's new fall economic statement. We'll just give you some quick reminders of the highlights of that. Yesterday, fiscal update included nearly $6.1 billion in new spending, although a lot of it was previously announced. It included over $2 billion for a temporary boost of the GST rebate, over $300 million for dental care benefits, and over a billion for a top-up for low-income renters, and $1 billion for a reserve fund of anticipated near-term pressures. So, as Trudeau tries to deal with one crisis, the affordability crisis, could Ford's invocation of the Nonwithstanding Clause to quell a school strike in Canada's most populous province force the Prime Minister into another crisis, a constitutional crisis? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in on it. Greg McEachern from Proof Strategies. He leans liberal. Kate Harrison from Summa Strategies. And Summa Strategies Canada is also a conservative strategist. And Kim Wright, an NDP strategist from Wright Strategies. He'll be joining us soon. Thank you all for joining us. Greg, well, let's start with you on the invocation of the um, nonwithstanding clause. Trudeau has taken a tough stance when it comes to this for Ontario hasn't been as tough when it comes to Quebec either using it or threatening to use it. Is he sort of going a little softer on Quebec compared to Ontario? Most likely, but so have many other politicians. I mean, it's a bit of a third rail in terms of Quebec politics. And the fact that there's even a notwithstanding clause, oh, you know, I'm going to leave it to the constitutional lawyers like Kate and Kim to, you know, tell us about that. But but it goes a, it goes a, a long way past. But I think... The issue with this one is very political, and from my point of view, we had Doug Ford, who made a lot of friends with unions, to the surprise of the NDP and the Liberals in the, before the provincial elections. He ate the NDP lunch, he finished the Liberal breakfast on this, and, it, and the honeymoon didn't last very long. And I, I don't think you'll see Doug Ford run again. He was not in his seat for the final vote. I think he's good at this type of politics. I think he loves the fact that he was able to reach out to union leaders 
make these you know great alliances right. and and now it's all kind of blown up they, they led the negotiations with a hammer in one hand and then a mallet in the other and the backfiring here is is it's we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg on this yet they have woken up the union movement in canada they, there is still a, a liberal leadership and an NDP leadership that needs to be had in Ontario. And again, both those parties, you know, need, you know, they, they should be taken behind the woodshed. They, they ran a leader that had been around for too long in, with the NDP and somebody wasn't yep. ready in terms of the liberals. I just want to interrupt you, though. I, I mean, on the provincial, that's fine. But on Trudeau's treatment of this, when Legault does it, he seems to sort of be treating it with kids, kid gloves, but then he goes and, and is hands-on with, with Mike, Ford. Why is that? Mike, you're absolutely right. It's Quebec. It's about votes. Right. If you want a path to a majority government, it's absolutely through Quebec. We've said that lots of times. Do I think that's the biggest issue here? I'm, I'm the brother of a teacher. I don't even have kids. Right. So, no, it's not the biggest issue. I, apologies, but I don't think that's what people in Ontario are fixated on right now. And I think the rest of Canada is watching. Kate, bring you in here for a second here. If Trudeau does intervene, can he afford a battle with the premier of Canada's most populous province? Yeah, well, that's part of the political calculus for sure. This is not uh, quite the same situation, Mike, obviously, as if we were having strike action pre-pandemic. I think you've got a lot of parents who uh, are at their wit's end. They want to see their kids back in class. They don't want any uh, any delay to that. So they are not necessarily fussed, to be honest, about how uh, kids get back in the classroom. And I think that that's uh, the calculation that the Ford government is taking. They expect parents to be upset uh, and ultimately be to be supportive of their action. Uh, as far as, you know, Justin Trudeau gaming on the popularity uh, of this move in Ontario versus previous moves in Quebec, I think that it's fair to ask questions about why uh, there's such a, a strong stance being taken now uh, with the Ford government, uh, one with whom Trudeau is not ideologically aligned, uh, and their relative silence on the issue of Bill 121, 96, and others where the notwithstanding clause has been used. Uh, he spoke in that clip very passionately, I might add, about you know Canadians speaking up to defend their rights. Well, where was that same passion we were talking about, the banning of religious symbols, not just by Trudeau, by other politicians, uh, but he's the one now with the megaphone uh, blaring it in Doug Ford's ear. And there needs to be a little bit more ideological purity here if you want to talk about the notwithstanding clause in one case and not another. Just want to let viewers know we're still trying to get Kim right uh, and connect with her. Uh, unfortunately, th those are some of the issues that we deal with, right, with, uh, with remote um, trying to connectivity. Um, I wanted to keep going with you for a second there, Kate, but in terms of this sort of friendship that we had seen develop between Doug Ford and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Is that done now, considering what we're seeing now in public? I don't think so. Uh, politics makes for strange bedfellows, as the saying goes. And I, I think that this might be a little bit of a blip in the uh, in the relationship. But uh, they've survived uh, a number of contentious issues, including during the pandemic when restrictions were at play and a number of other issues. So They've had their peaks and valleys in terms of the, the Trudeau-Ford relationship. I think the test is going to be how long this goes for. Uh, is the government going to dig in their heels? Uh, will the union, will there be any kind of attempt to meet in the middle? Um, I think that that's, you know, ultimately an outcome that would lead to a more positive relationship between the prime minister and the premier. But uh, both can be pretty stubborn. And I think we're going to see this at play for the next few weeks. What we will see at uh, play in the next couple of weeks as well is how the fall economic update is being received. Greg, come back to you for a second. I mean, millions of Canadians did wake up to more money in their bank accounts today in the form of that GST rebate. Um, 
Is that why we had the timing of the fall economic update like this, or at the same time, is it, you know, was it something that they, they had to plan for this time? Well, it, it's been in, I think, in the works for a while. And then I think I said last week, all three parties, major parties, were, were behind this. And it's the right type of help to do right now because it's targeted, as opposed to in Saskatchewan, where everybody over the age of 18 got $500. I don't know what a millionaire needs $500 for right now, especially when we have this much inflation. So I think, you know, it's a really tough um, path for the, for the Liberals to, to try to find is a way to help the people that are being hurt. Uh, without, you know, going against what the Bank of Canada is trying to do. The other thing that came out today, Mike, was the colossal job numbers, which right. seemed to have surprised everybody. So, again, I'm not an economist, an economist but I can't even say it today. But, uh, <laughs> but if you are looking at what tr how a traditional recession starts, this seems so odd that we had all these people go back into the workforce at the same time where we think we're going into a recession. There are some who are saying today that we may not see a recession or as bad of a recession as, as might have been expected. Kate, to, to you now, in terms of uh, how Pierre Polyev sort of reacted to this, I mean, he came out against, obviously, the new spending, saying the government should have used the increased tax revenue to pay down the deficit, so Conservatives uh, don't really want any of this new spending to help Canadians get through the cost of living, it seems, or uh, is that not really the message uh, that he's trying to put out? Yeah, well, we saw him meet the government on the GST credit and some of the other initiatives that were proposed a little bit earlier in the session, and I think that that was an example of, you know, the Conservatives putting politics aside uh, in the interest of trying to support Canadians and their pocketbooks. Uh, I think ultimately uh, the big uh, concern for Conservatives and for Mr. Polyev uh, is the issue of the carbon tax and whether or not the government's uh, programs that they put forward uh, yesterday, is that going to really offset uh, the pain that people will feel in the new year um, with a, with an increased carbon tax. So that has been the real focus there. And there were still a number of uh, spending initiatives, I think, that, uh, you know, caused some concerns and raised some questions about whether or not now is the right time to be to be doing that. Is it the time to be, you know, creating these uh, large tax incentives for, for green tech and clean tech? I know that we need to maintain competitiveness with the U.S., but uh, could that be better used uh, to help uh, everyday Canadians and their their challenges. I think that's the concern that Conservatives have right now. Greg, less than 30 to go, so I'll try and make this short. Uh, I, I know what you're saying about not giving sort of wide support and keeping it targeted, but still Canadians go and they look now and they go, well, the price of bread is still high. How am I supposed to deal with that if, they, you know, if they're not somebody who's getting some of these targeted measures? So how are they supposed to feel about this economic statement? Well, you, you have to look for, for things that are going to help. Um, look, I, I, I put myself through university. I borrowed a lot of money to do it. I don't begrudge anyone, like the Republicans in the United States, when Biden you know, took the, the interest off student loans, you know, they were very angry about this because some of them had student loans, supposedly. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't really care about that. It, it's, it's tough right now. If I, if I was coming out of university and had to try to find an apartment in Halifax or Toronto, um, you know, one less thing to have to pay or less to pay is going to be a good thing. I think we have to continue to give signs of hope to get people through this. Greg McEachern, thank you so much. Kate Harrison, appreciate it. Kim Wright, we missed you this week. We'll get you next week, hopefully. Coming up on Power Play, investigating possible war crimes in the middle of a war. Chief Justice of Ukraine's Supreme Court was in Ottawa this week speaking about the challenges back home and the help that our own Chief Justice can provide. Conversation with the two chiefs of two Chief Justices is right after this break.
accusations of war crimes and the impacts of an invasion on the justice system. Delegations of judges from around the world were in Ottawa for a conference this week, including Ukraine's Supreme Court Chief Justice. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine stretching into its ninth month, Justice Sivilov Knyazev says his country's judicial system is struggling to handle the number, the number of criminal reports stemming from the war. Still, judges continue to track allegations of war crimes committed in that country. That's despite the fact that dozens of Ukrainian judges have enlisted to join the war effort. So what are the challenges in tracking and investigating war crimes in Ukraine right now? And what can Canada do to help support Ukraine's judiciary? Earlier this week, we sat down with the chief justices of Ukraine and Canada. Have a look. Joining me now are Sivilar Knyazev, the Chief Justice of the Ukrainian Supreme Court, and Rishal Vagnao, the Chief Justice of Canada's Supreme Court. Thank you for both of you being here. Really appreciate it. Chief Justice Knyazev, I'm going to start with you. I mean, the attack on Ukraine has been an attack on democracy, but also on the judiciary. 11% of courthouses in your country have been damaged and even destroyed. How is it that justice is still carried out and is still administered in your country. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, we still continue running justice. It's not so easy. It's very difficult because, as you have mentioned, 11% of our court premises are destroyed. Even more, like 17% are occupied by Russian Federation, and judges are like uh, being in occupation. Judges are being in prison. Judges are being threatened. Judges are being tortured by the Russian, Russian occupants. They do everything just to threaten our judges and to make us not to run justice, not to give the access to justice for our citizenship. But still, the life goes on, and we just, we just need to go on with uh, providing justice for the people like we have disputes like divorces, insurance companies, and a lot of war crimes. This is the main scene now in Ukraine. War crimes, like thousands of war crimes done by Russian soldiers, and our courts are to consider these cases to bring to justice all those Russian soldiers who did the atrocities on the territory of Ukraine. That is why we are all doing everything to continue our justice operating to, to give justice to people. Talk to me a little bit about the difficulty in trying to either gather the evidence or prosecute those war crimes and you consider um, how much evidence is needed, A, but B, how at the same time you are trying to administer justice while under attack. Yes. Uh, you're right, it's a very hard job to get evidences of this crime, but we have a great support of our international partners, our international partners from the EU, from the United States, and especially from Canada, provide a lot of help in collecting the evidences, like we have special applications, special programs, like in every phone there is an application which can help to collect the evidences of crimes done by, by the Russian soldiers. You can just make a photo and make the geoposition of this photo mm -hmm. and nail the photo and then this uh, evidence will be transferred to the prosecutor's office and la later maybe to international criminal court where it should be the evidence of Russian aggression, of Russian crimes. And still it is really a difficult situation for our courts to administer justice because like for example we are hearing a case, a case considering a case and then there is a, a, a air raid alert. 
So the judge and the defendant and the lawyer and the prosecutor, everyone goes down to the shelter and there in the small room they are sitting for several hours waiting until the um, missile launches finish. So it's really, really a hard and very unsafe job for judges now to be a judge in Ukraine. Chief Justice, fact now these are conditions that you would never even contemplate no. in the Supreme Court of Canada. Canada has also pledged help for Ukraine, specifically the ju judiciary and the system there. Yeah. What can Canada do to help? Well, the, the, <clears throat> the three branches of Canada have, have uh, already uh, mentioned that they, would, that they would help Ukraine as much as possible. Of course, the elected officials have their part to play. As for the judiciary as such, um, you know, I chair the uh, National Judicial Institute, which provides uh, training, education, uh, professional education to judges in Canada. And for the last 15 years, the NGI was present in Ukraine to help them, uh, to help them to, uh, uh, for you know, selection of judges, to help them to uh, uh, have more guidelines uh, about the, the process of appointments and uh, training and education. So we were there until the war began uh, a couple of months ago. And, uh, and I'm very proud to stand with uh, Chief Justice Kinayev today uh, because we want to continue to provide this help because uh, judicial training is, is an investment in democracy mm -hmm. and uh, that's why it's so important to help our friends in Ukraine. And especially that investment, uh, Chief Justice Kenyadev, because of the fact that you have so many judges that are actually trading their judicial robes for military uniforms. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, right. Some of our judges just go to war. They just took weapons in their hands and they are protecting our motherland with the weapons in their hands. Like we have four judges from the Supreme Court who are fighting in Ukrainian army and 60 judges uh, from other courts, like first instance courts, appellate courts. And uh, more, moreover, we have like 300 court staff who are now in army and protecting uh, our motherland with uh, their weapons. Sometimes there are tragical cases when our judges die. Like two days before, our judge died. He was a sapper who cleaned mines uh, in the occupied territories, and the mine exploded, and he died. That's a great loss for our judiciary. Just unbelievable. Condolences uh, to the people there as well. Um, Chief Justice Wagner, I wanted to ask you, because uh, you had also spoken, I mean, and this is a good lens to look through this in, you had spoken in the summer about the role that courts play in imp implementing the rule of law and the values of rule of law as well, but also the value in democratic institutions. We're seeing in this country in the last couple of years have been attacks on our de democratic institutions. Um, how does the Canada? How does the Supreme Court of Canada defend against these types of attacks on things like the government and the Bank of Canada? Well, you know, the first thing I think that uh, we must make sure to take every tool that we can get to uh, provide the right information to the public. Because, but does it I, worry you what you're seeing? What I'm seeing outside uh, Canada is is very uh, difficult to see. And within Canada as well. And those sometimes attacks. it could happen in Canada as well. You remember the events that we lived. Uh, a couple of months ago in, in Ottawa in January and February. So uh, we're still vulnerable. So that's why we have to be uh, very careful not to take anything for granted and take any initiatives to show to the Canadian people that we have strong institutions, transparent institutions. And the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, since I became chief for the last couple of years, we took every opportunity to, uh, to make sure that, first of all, our decisions would be well understood by the 
public with our this uh, one page uh, summary and uh, we sit outside of Ottawa for we sat uh, in September for the second time in our in our history uh, so that people could understand it's very difficult for people to appreciate something that you don't know so we have an obligation to make sure that people know about our uh, who the judges are what they do how they do it and uh, it could take a few uh, initiatives to uh, to get this this goal. Just in closing, uh, Chief Justice uh, Kenyazov, I just want to ask you, what do you think and what are you looking for for support, not only from Canada, but from other countries in terms of making sure that when you go home, that justice can continue to be carried out? Yes, I think we need support in three directions, like military support, is, is, I think it's understandable, political support, we need like uh, creating a special tribunal for the crimes of aggression of Russian Federation because the International Criminal Court it uh, doesn't have the jurisdiction of the crime of aggression done by Russian Federation so our political leadership um, has an idea and we ask all the international partners to help us in creating this ad hoc uh, international tribunal uh, and bring to judges to judge uh, to judges justice uh, Russian leadership, military leadership, and uh, political leadership. Chief Justice Kinyazov, Chief Justice Wagner, thank you both thank for you being much. with us today. Appreciate thank you very it. much. Thank you. Still to come from the fall economic statement to the inquiry looking at the use of the Emergencies Act, it was a busy week in politics. So, folks, if you're grabbing a snack, make it quick. We are coming back with our plays and misplays of the week. Power Play returns right after this. Welcome back. Well, Friday is my favorite day of the week, not just because it's the start of the weekend, but it's also because I get to spend some time with everyone's favorite panel on TV. Yes, it's the Friday Press Gallery. We've got the fall economic statement, warning of a recession and a province-wide strike that included the use of the notwithstanding clause. With a big week in politics coming to a close, who came out on top and who didn't? Joining me now with a new title, CTV News Senior Digital Parliamentary Reporter, Rachel Aiello, I can't wait to see that on your business card because it's going to be a long one. Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacorte and also Ernst Cliff Strategies Principal Greg Weston. Nice to see all of you. Greg, we're going to start with you. You're giving a play to the government for their fall economic statement. Before we go to it, let's go to this clip. There really are measures here that are targeted at the people who need it the most. So it's a play for the federal government. That was Christopher Freeland. Why is it a play? Well, um, I think for the, the first time that, that I can remember since Justin Trudeau has been in office, um, it really sounded like a, a government that was taking fiscal responsibility seriously mm -hmm. and sounding a little bit less like the national candy store. Uh, you know, this, the kind of rolling out the goodies every time there, there's something. Um, they were assisted by the, the fact that we are heading into uh, a recession. Uh, but I just, it's incredible to me that, that for the first time we're actually seeing a balanced budget on one of their, in one of their books. Right. You know, no matter how wide the page was, there wasn't always enough, seemed to be enough room that we could get to that. It's unfolded six times. Yeah, yeah, it is, of. it is. Now, it's, it's five years out, but it's there, and they had to have it there. So... 
as usual, uh, these are messaging exercises as much as they are um, fiscal exercises. And I think the message was there's a steady hand on the tiller, which is probably what Canadians would need to hear right now as we head into this next year, which is not going to be fun. Not fun, Rachel. And so what are some of the challenges that Deputy Prime Minister Freeland faces here? Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is the only time she mentioned in her speech in the House the word recession, she was talking about the post-pandemic recession that we are out of. Now, the fiscal document itself warns in the like downside projection that we could see a mild recession in 2023. So while we do have this potential to be in a surplus five years from now, there's a lot of time and a lot of economic changes that could happen between now and then. So in the short term, they're going to have to continue this message of fiscal austerity and responsibility at a time where even more than they are now, Canadians could be hurting and threading, Susan, this sort of political and economic needle all at the same time. Yeah, my, my uh, quibble with this is that I don't know, I, I suspect we're not going to be talking about this economic statement next week. You know, that it is one right. of those things that probably is here and gone, and not just because of the quick news cycle. I think it's, it, it is a testament to what Greg's talking about, is the prudence and the... Um, but do they need to be talking about it more? That's, right. I, I don't know that it's a success if it disappears. Right. I think I I do not know what the next act in this show is, and uh, I think they do need a next act. Yeah, next act on our show going to Rachel Aiello for her misplay. Yeah, so I'm going to give my misplay this week to the federal conservatives for their lack of speaking, a silence when it comes to uh, Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause. During his leadership campaign, Pierre Polyev, you know, spoke a lot about freedom. He talked with confidence about eating into the NDP's working class voter pool. Obviously, he was very outspoken during the convoy protests about upholding protesters' right under the charter. So I think it was a little bit interesting to see that he had almost nothing to say on this this week. You know, Mr. Polyev is a very skilled political communicator, so I'll be curious to see going forward if he's able to kind of weave a message where he's acknowledging workers' rights and Canadians' rights to protest in line with what's going on in Ontario without maybe going right after Ford, which clearly I don't think he wants to do. Susan, what did you make of the silence from Pierre Polyev on that? Uh, the same as Rachel. You know, that this is going to be a, a very hard one to parse. I also, though, uh, I'll just... <laughs> I find the 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 noise, the, the opposite of silence from the, the Trudeau government kind of interesting too because right. they, now you're speaking up, right? Yeah. Where, where have you been uh, on the secularism law in Quebec? Where have you been on uh, language, the Quebec unilaterally amending the constitution? Now maybe they're warming up for the fight uh, uh, with Danielle Smith and Scott Moe about stepping out of, of all things uh, Canadian it seems. But I, I would have liked, I think there are a lot of liberals out there who would have liked Mr. Trudeau to be speaking up for the Charter a little more strongly before this week. Greg, there is a calculation around that, though, isn't there? It's called Quebec. I mean, <laughs> the, um, Quebec, I don't know how many times they've invoked the notwithstanding clause now, but it seems to mm -hmm. sometimes show up about as much as the weather. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's just sort of a, a matter of course almost. So it's a little bit hypocritical for everybody to say, oh, my God, they're using it in Ontario now. Uh, I think the problem in, the, in this case is that most people look at this and you don't have to be a, a constitutional scholar to understand that you don't suddenly put the, the Bill of Rights on, on, right. on ice uh, to, to, settle to, to, to settle a labor dispute right. that hasn't started yet. I mean, you know, yeah. really. Even though it was a collision course, it still hadn't started yet. Well, it hadn't started yet. Yeah. yeah. Susan, you've got a play. It involves Justice Rouleau at the Emergencies Act. But before we go to that, let's go to this clip.
And so you understand you're obstructing a roadway, correct? Uh, and the big Please, if I could uh, ask uh, everyone to not uh, act out, um, that would be appreciated. We're trying to keep this civilized. Go ahead, I'm sorry. You didn't see Justice Rouleau there, but certainly that was his voice in asking for a bit of calm at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Susan, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I give him major points this week for... This was going to be a difficult week. Those convoy protest people, uh, the organizers, uh, have taken the stand most of this week. They uh, they had a, a cheering gallery. Uh, he He did seem to lose his patience. The one thing we can say at the end of this week is they were heard. They cannot complain that they weren't heard, and yet he exercised discipline and respect for the procedure, and uh, I think he showed why he was chosen as the commission uh, chair this week. I thought it was uh, a masterful performance. A master class, in your opinion, Greg? Yeah, he's, he, he is just the epitome of the class act. He's there. He doesn't um, show any bias to one side yeah. uh, or another. And this is so important for this whole exercise because the important part is going to be what he does in his report at the end, the conclusions that he reaches at the end. Will they be credible? Well, he is bringing so much credibility to this that um, we're just, I think, as a country, very fortunate to have him sitting in that seat. And it can't be fun. Yeah, Rachel, was this his toughest week when you consider, I mean, as Susan had said, the protesters have been heard. Uh, is he going to have to sort of call for calm going forward, do you think? Uh, if those people decide to show up and pretend, potentially have things to say when the federal government comes up to testify, maybe. But certainly this was a week where we saw the most amount of kind of emotion and fervor in the audience. And I think the other big takeaway for me this week was kind of this sad state of civic literacy and how underlying these protests was the basic misunderstanding by some of them of how government works. And it's honestly a bit dispiriting to watch and understand that some of their anger and some of their distrust of government is based in a lack of understanding of how it works or believing and refusing to look further than understanding how it actually does function or right. what their motivations might be. So taking away from it, I'm looking to see maybe if Rulo in his report is able to tap into that, suggest a more broader recommendation about, you know, civics or education and trying to t combat misinformation and the role of social media, because that also was a very prominent part of the conversation this week and how they all got together and was able to find this community, organize and go from there. So I think that's a whole other area that for me this week was uh, something I'll be taking away. Yeah. Rachel Aiolo, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston, thank you all for joining us. Have a great weekend. And to you, have a great weekend. That is your Power Play Day and Week in Politics. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend.